Our sermon today will be taken from Jonah 1, verse 1 to 16. This is the word of God. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood for you. O Lord, have done as it is pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Thus says the Lord. Thanks, Grace. All right, guys, welcome uh, to CCC. Again, if this is your first time ever worshiping with us, I would love to meet you after the service. Please come up to me. I'd love to get to know you. And also at the membership class, again, let me just reiterate, we have about 10 to 12 people signed up. Um, if you haven't signed up, but you want to get to know more about CCC, we've ordered like 20 or 25 food boxes because we like to wishful think like that. Um, so uh, just come and it'll be in that area and we'll use that, um, that PowerPoint. And um, it doesn't mean that you're committed to the church. It just means that you want to know more about, about who we are and get more information about, about CCC. Um, and also, from if you are members, uh, March 26th, Sunday, he'll be after church in the same place. We'll have a first membership meeting. So just put that in your calendars if you could come, because it'll be cool to have more than five of us here at the time. Um, at the time for it. All right. 
Great. So today, uh, we're going to take a break from our John series. If you've been with us the past few weeks, you probably know that we've been going through the book of John. Um, but we're going we're gonna to take a break from that, and we're going to go t- through another series that I promise we will do in between the John series, um, which is the Minor Prophets, which is in the Old Testament. The Minor Prophets are the last 12 books in the Old Testament. Okay, If you look at the Old Testament, the last 12 books is Hosea, and, and, and Malachi. That's the, that's the last 12 books of the Old Testament. They're called minor, not because they're not important. It just means that they're shorter in length compared to the major prophets. The major prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Okay? So 16 prophetic books, 4 major, 12 minor. So Jonah um, is part of the minor prophets, one of the 12 minor prophets. And it's a funny book because Jonah is completely different than any other prophetic book, or really any book in the Old Testament, because unlike all the other prophets in the Old Testament who are usually really obedient, right, they would say all these long sentences about what God said, and they'll preach repentance, and they'll say, thus says the Lord, and have all this authority, the book of Jonah is all about his rebellion. The book of Jonah is all about Jonah not doing what God's told him to do. Um, And the author of this book, who most likely is Jonah himself, looking back at his own rebellion, um, um, includes all of his rebelliousness in this book. And it's interesting, why is that? Why, why is this prophet, why did God include this book in, in his Bible, in the Old Testament? But not to be mistaken, as we will see, the point of the book is not actually Jonah's obedience. There is a much deeper question that applies to all of us here today as we study it, and I hope we will see it as we study it. So let's get into it. There's three things I want to point out. The first is our finite justice. Finite means imperfect, limited sense of justice. So first point, our finite justice, God's sovereign patience, and God's better justice. Our finite, imperfect sense of justice, God's sovereign patience, and God's better justice. All right, let's pray, and then we'll enter into our first point. Father, as we finite humans dig into your word, uh, we will have... um, complications and we will have shortcomings and I pray that you will be gracious um, not only to our hearts but also to our minds that we are made as holistic people who are called to use their hearts and also use their minds and also let that dictate their actions and we're holistic and that Lord let this passage minister to all of who we are and that as we study it deeply as we see what you're trying to say from it uh, it would affect our hearts and that it would influence our actions Uh, as we live our lives in the world. Thank you that you have given us your word, that we may grow in knowledge of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. First point, our finite justice. All right. We see the book start with God calling Jonah to do a task. And Jonah didn't want to do it, right? Verse 1, God told Jonah, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, the name Jonah, let me just get into this a little bit. It, it, it's in Hebrew, it literally is Yonah, and it's the same word for dove. It's the same exact word for the word dove of the dove that God used in the Noah story. When Noah, after the flood died down, he sent out a dove, and the dove came back with an olive branch. It's the same exact word. And, and ever since that story, the dove and the olive branch has been an everlasting symbol of peace of extending mercy. So Jonah, Yonah, um, is God's agent 
of peace, right? Even today we say, I'm extending an olive branch when we're fighting with somebody. I'm extending peace. Jonah is a god of agents, extension of peace. To bring peace where? To Nineveh, right? We read that in verse 1, which is a city in a country called Assyria. But Jonah didn't want to do it. He fled away. Why? Because Jonah didn't like the Assyrians very much. Why not? Because Nineveh, a city in Assyria, at the time, that whole people group was Israel's arch enemy. They're, they're, they're fighting with them. Assyria were the ones who destroyed Israel in 722 BC. You can see that in his historical book. And Jonah is a prophet in Israel at that time. So the tensions between Israel and Assyria and Nineveh, which is a city in Assyria, was very, very high. But on top of being Israel's arch enemy, the people, people of Nineveh was, were also very, very evil. Okay, how do we know that? Well, there's, there's biblical proof in the text that says they're evil. Look at chapter 1, verse 2 in your printouts. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me, God says. And then chapter 3, verse 4, God tells him again, uh, um, or the king of Nineveh, actually, um, after hearing what Jonah has to say to them, he commands everyone in the kingdom to turn from their evil ways. Chapter 3, verse 10, when God saw that they did turn from their evil ways, how they have turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. So our, our, the Bible says these are evil people, but there, it's not only biblical evidence that tell us they're evil people. There's many archaeological and literally disco- literary discoveries about the Assyrian people. Okay, the Assyrian people are known to take pride and actually record their acts of evil so people can read about it. I prepped two versions of the story in case there are children in the room, but there's not, so I'm going to go with the uncensored version. Um, and, and I'm not just saying this to gross us out. There's a point to it. But historians have found there's many records of the Assyrian civilization and what they did to other people groups. Okay, This is either through their writings or through carvings in the wall. Here are some of the practices that they've, they're known to have done. Skinning people alive and piling up their skin in a tower as a symbol of their power. That's one thing they would do. It's going to get grosser, okay? so just just hang with me. They would cut people's limbs, and they would force their family members to carry these limbs around the city as proof of their power. And lastly, I won't get into detail, but they would burn people alive, including, let's just say, those who are not yet of age. These were evil, evil, evil people. The, the children version was they did very bad things. So imagine the horror stories you've heard of terrorist groups somewhere or of the North African militia and what they do to families there. Those kinds of stories, these people maybe were even worse. Now, I didn't share all these to just gross us out, but I really want us to get into the mind and into the heart of Jonah. Why did Jonah rebel against the Lord's call to preach to Nineveh, to Assyria? Not because Jonah wanted to avoid the mission field due to an idolatry of comfort, which is often how this text is preached. He wants to be comfortable, so he doesn't want to go to the mission field. No, Jonah didn't avoid the call to preach to Nineveh because he idolized comfort. He avoided it because he hated them. He didn't like them. Of course he hated them. It makes sense. Who wouldn't be angry at a group of people who is that evil, and on top of that, they're your national enemy. I'd be angry too, wouldn't you? 
No way Jonah was going to breach to them. There's no way Jonah was going to help these evil people repent and avoid the wrath of God. Jonah wanted justice. He wasn't going to extend an olive branch. And even after Jonah did preach to them um, in, in, in chapter 4, after a series of events, and chapter 4, or chapter 3, finally Jonah preached to them, and then they did repent. This is Jonah's attitude about it in chapter 4, verses 2 to 3. After Nineveh repented, Jonah prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That, I w- that, that is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah knew that God was a gracious God, a passionate God, abounding in love, relents from calamity. And he knew that if he preached to these people, there was a possibility that they would repent, and there's a possibility that God would forgive them for their sins. And that's exactly what happened. And there's no way Jonah wanted that to happen. I'm not going to help these people save themselves. I'm not going to help these people escape the wrath of God. And that's what happened. And Jonah said, I'd rather just kill me now. (laughs) He was that upset. He was still upset about it. See, I, I preached and they repented, now they repented, now you're happy at them, just kill me now. <laughs> he was mad about it, he wasn't happy about it. God's mercy violated Jonah's sense of justice. God's mercy violated Jonah's sense of finite justice. Jonah literally wanted all of them to burn in hell. That was his heart towards them. These are evil people, they don't deserve God's grace. So what did he do in verse 3? He fled, he ran away. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. I say all this to clarify that the purpose of this book is not about encouraging us to go and be missionaries. I think that's great. If God calls you to go and go to the mission field, be missionaries, that's awesome. But that's not the point of this book. God, through this book, wants to address a deeper, very significant question, not deeper, but a very significant question to you and I that he posed to Jonah then, and he's asking you and I here today. And the question is this, how do you think God should deal with sinful people? That's that's the question of the book. How do you think God should deal with sinful people in the world? You know, another unique thing about this book is, unlike any other book, this book ends with an unanswered question. That's the very last passage, the very, very last verse in this book is an unanswered question. If you look at chapter 4, verse 11, this is how the book ends. And should I not pity Nineveh, God asks. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. So what's this book about? This book is, this book is about answering a great question How should God deal with sinful people in the world? Should he pity them or should he not? Let me pause and bring that question back to us here today. How do you think God should deal with evil people? Actually, let me rephrase that. Remember, Nineveh wasn't only sinful people. They were also Israel's personal enemy. So they pose a personal threat to Israel. So let me make it more accurate. The question isn't only how should God deal with sinful people in the world. The question is how should God deal with sinful people who pose a personal threat to you? How should God deal with them? Should God just bring their wrath, his wrath upon them? Jonah's sense of justice says they should all burn in hell. (laughs) 
He does not wish the best for them. He wants them to perish. So he ran away. He was simmering in his anger. He allowed himself to simmer in his anger, which was justified somehow by his finite sense of justice, and it caused him to disobey God and fled to Tarshish, which is actually a place directly opposite from where Nineveh was at. Nineveh was north uh, east of Jonah. Tarshish was west of Jonah. He fled the whole. He 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 was disobedient, and this is often the pattern of of our disobedience, isn't it? If we think about it, our disobedience, our lack of forgiveness, our desire to not forgive others is usually not caused by flat-out disobedience. We don't, we, don't, we don't hear a call, yeah, I need to forgive others, but God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disobey you. It's not that black and white, right? Usually when we have a hard time um, forgiving others or having pity on those in this world who are sinful, it's much more complicated than that. Like Jonah, for him, he didn't want to give up a sense of justice. Is justice good? Absolutely justice is good. His rebellion was not just, I want to disobey God. He, he, he thought he was upholding the sense of justice. There's no way these guys are not going to pay for their own sins. He wants them to pay. And we get that, right? I mean, I, I do. I often have a hard time wishing for the best of those whom I consider my Nineveh, not because I want to be disobedient to God, but because I often take a little bit of truth like Jonah did with justice, and I use that little bit of truth to justify me simmering in my anger and to justify me wishing the worst for them, as if somehow that's justice, as if somehow that's teaching them a lesson or whatever it may be. We bathe in our wrath and simmer in our anger. An example would be, if I let my anger go, they're going to think their sin is okay. That I, I use that to justify. If, if I let my anger go, I'm going to enable them and just let them do their thing. And, and, and that's not what's best for them. So um, I don't want to let them off the hook. And therefore, I'm going to simmer my anger. Because if I let my anger go, they're going to think that they're off the hook. I simmer in my anger for my own sense of justice or whatever it is. Or maybe, maybe, if I forgive them, if I do not simmer in my anger, if I wish the best for them, that means I'm committing myself to having a relationship with them. And I don't think I can do that right now. I can't be friends with them. So I'm going to simmer in my anger and I'm going to stay in this wrathful disposition for a long time. But God, God does not ask Jonah to ignore Nineveh's sin, does he? And does God ask Jonah to be best friends with them? He doesn't. All God asks Jonah to do is preach to them so that they will not perish. All God asks Jonah to do or to become is the kind of person who does not wish his enemies to perish. That's all God is asking Jonah to do. God didn't ask Jonah to become a kind of person who would ignore their sins. No, we just read God acknowledged their sin over and over and over again. God isn't telling Jonah to say, oh, no big deal, you know, you skin people, eh, I do that too when I'm angry. No, God, God doesn't tell Jonah to say that. Right? God didn't ask Jonah to become their best friends and, and afterwards say, hey, after you've repented, let's be besties and let's hang out together. God didn't ask Jonah to do that either. All God asked Jonah to do is that he would be the kind of person who does not wish anyone to perish, even his worst enemies, and preach repentance to them that God may relent from his anger. That's all he has to do. Can I be honest? If I'm completely honest... <laughs> Let's just, this is just me, honest, okay? And I'm ashamed to admit it. 
But if I really dig deep down into the dark, dark, dark corners of my heart, I think there are some people or groups of people in the world that if a disaster were to hit and say they disappeared from the face of the earth, I wouldn't be that sad about it. <laughs> I'm just, I'm being vulnerable, I'm being honest. If I dig really deep down into the dark corners of my heart, there are some individuals maybe in this world or groups of people in the world that if a calamity were to hit and they were to be gone, I'd be like, ah, oh, man, that, that's probably all my ration would be. <laughs> I think there are, if I'm honest, a few Ninevites in my life. And I'm curious if we all dig deep into the deep corners of our hearts, whether or not you'd be surprised at the fact that there may be some Ninevites in your life. Let me pose a question again. What do you think God should do to your Ninevites? What should he do? It may be a person who has wronged you or a group of people who have wronged you to bring it closer to home. It may be, say, a group of people who support a different political party than you and has wronged the process and injustice has been caused and we are angry at them. It could be them. Or a group of people that belong to a fanatical religious sect who pose a threat to you. Who is your Nineveh? Who are the Ninevites in our lives? Now, forgiving them, let me remind us, doesn't mean you have to ignore their evils. It doesn't mean you have to justify their behavior and enable them. That's not what God's telling him to do. He acknowledges their evil. It doesn't mean you have to be best friends with them. All it means that like Jonah, we must not wish calamity or disaster upon them. <laughs> We're called by God to become the kind of people who truly wishes the best for them and do not wish for them to perish. By the way, some would say, well, that's kind of a low bar for Christians. right? That, that's really easy to do. Aren't we called to seek deeper intimacy with people? Aren't we as Christians called to pursue others and be friends with others, not just to tolerate and, and not wish them to perish? Well, yes, but just getting to a point of not wanting them to perish is not God's command for Jonah to everyone, just to his worst enemies. Okay, let, let's get that fact right. If Jonah, if we can become the kind of person who forgives and cares for and wishes the best for even our worst enemies, just imagine how sweet and how rich were the relationships you have with those who aren't your enemies. Okay, this command isn't for everyone. This expectation isn't for everyone in our lives. I can't go to my wife after a big fight and say, I wish you the best. That's all God's asked me to do. <laughs> no, that, that's not God's command for me and my wife. That's not God's command for me and my fellow believers. or my, or my. It's God's command to how I treat my worst, worst, worst enemies. Okay, And if we can become the kind of people that treats even our worst enemies like that, imagine how rich our relationships would be to those who aren't our worst enemies. Okay, It's to strive to have this heart towards those who has hurt you most in life, to wish the best for them, to long for them to experience God's grace in the gospel for the first time if they're not in Christ, or to long for them to be renewed in the gospel if they are in Christ. And I know it's not simple. I know it's complicated. I don't want to minimize the pain. I don't want to shortcut the process of grief and anger, okay? That's not what I'm saying. But whatever we need to do to get to that point, God is saying, get there. Get there. Not just for their sake, 
but for our sake. Look at verse 3. Look at how verse 3 is worded. The further Jonah simmered in his anger, the further away he went from the Ninevites, the further away he refused to preach to them and wish for them not to perish, it was hurting him too. Look at the language there, verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee from Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord. He went down. Joppa was west. Why did the author say went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish? So he paid the fare and went down into it. Went down into the ship? How does that work? To go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Then again, verse 5. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. The author's trying to say, it's not a geographical instruction. He's trying to say the more Jonah used his finite sense of justice to justify simmering in his anger, in his hatred, the deeper on a downward spiral he went. Went down, went down, went down. Opposite to God's call in verse 1 to do what? Arise. Go to Nineveh. But instead, he chose to simmer in his anger. He chose to become the kind of person that wishes them to perish. And he went down, and he went down, and he went down. So how do we get to a point where we can hope the best for our Ninevites? Not only for their sake, but for our own interests, for our own health, for our own growth in Christ-likeness and sanity. How can we do that? Okay, we can start this process, or we can, we can start to become willing to enter into this process by seeing God's sovereign patience towards us, which is our second point. God's sovereign patience. Now, there's a long process for forgiveness, okay? I'm not minimizing that. We have to allow the anger to pass. Let it pass. Don't, don't shortcut it, okay? You have to start feeling the sadness that is actually behind the anger. Your anger is protecting you from sadness. You have, you have to get to a point where you feel that sadness. There might be transference issues, the things in the past that happened that's reminding you of this right now. So the anger you have is more than probably what the situation warrants. It's complicated. There's a lot of things that play a role into forgiveness. All this is saying is, let's be willing to move and do that hard work, but where can we find the motivation to begin? How does God propel us to even want to begin this process of reconciliation, or rather, of forgiveness? Well, it's by making us realize something really important. It's by making us realize how much God has had mercy and patience towards us, which brings us to our next scene. So, okay, first scene, Jonah disobeyed. He chose to simmer in his anger and hatred. He went to Tarshish on a boat, went on a downward spiral away from the presence of the Lord, away from preaching and wanting the best for Nineveh. Verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. This is Jonah on a boat. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship in, into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. All right, so here we see God in his sovereignty bringing about a storm. A storm in the sea big enough to scare even experienced sailors. Okay, what is God doing here? He's trying to level the playing field for all the people or quote-unquote characters in this story. He's leveling the playing field. Okay, L look at this. He was angry at Jonah and at, and at the sailors, I guess. He, was, he, he, had, he had wrath. He, he, was, 
He was risking their well-being. Why? Well, it's pretty obvious for Jonah because he was being disobedient to God, right? He deserves God's wrath. That's, that's obvious in the story. But what about the mariners? Look at verse 5. What did the mariners ever do? Well, the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, which means that these sailors are pagans. They're worshiping false idols. They have their own gods, that they're false gods that they're praying to. So he's, he's leveling the playing field. Yes, Nineveh is disobedient. Yes, Nineveh is sinful. But so is everybody else. And you too, Jonah. <laughs> That's what God is trying to say here. None of them, neither the sailors, neither Jonah, neither Ninevites, were exactly people who deserve God's good pleasure. So let's, let's continue here. So, so Jonah's, Jonah's sense of justice, okay, if, if he continued the sense of justice and the rightful recipients of God's wrath were the Ninevites, he also has to apply the same sense of justice to himself and to the sailors. Right? Okay, let's continue. So God brought about a storm. Then what happened? The captain got really mad at Jonah. Everyone's out here praying to their gods, as they think their gods are, hoping that kind of hit the jackpot. You know, oh, this is the god, you know, that, that, that was right. I don't know if you guys seen the movie, Talladega Nights. If you haven't, I encourage you to see it. There's a scene where Will Ferrell thinks he's on fire, and he starts praying to all these gods, and he starts asking Tom Cruise for help. It's just, it's this funny, it's this funny scene where when you're in a panic mode, you just ask everybody for help. That's kind of where they're at. This God, that God, I don't know. Anybody just help us. But there's one guy sleeping. What is this guy doing? He should join us and pray. Who knows that his God will be the one that saves us, right? That's kind of the attitude here. That's what's going on. This one guy isn't praying. He should be praying. Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God, right? Perhaps your God, the God, will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So Jonah went to the deck of the ship where everyone else was at. Still in the middle of the storm, okay? And, and they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. Lots is a way that uh, back in the day where they would devoke divine guidance by making this, and, and, and making decisions. It's like our version of a coin toss. And, and the lot would just fall on somebody, and they think that God has divinely did that. And, and, and the lot fell on Jonah. See, another theme of this book is God's sovereignty. We can't miss that. The author is trying to, trying to tell us. We see him having control over what? Over the sea, right? And we see him now having control over the what? The casting of the lots, right? Of gravity or whatever. He can control it in such a way that, that, that points to Jonah. And later in chapter 4, we'll see God using other forces of nature to accomplish his redemptive work, such as the wind, a plant, the sun, and worms. We'll get to that later. But that's a big theme of the book. It's emphasizing he's the creator of all. He can do whatever he wants. He has authority over all. Okay? So back to the ship. The lot fell on Jonah. So the sailors started to ask uh, Jonah questions in verse 8. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? They're asking all these things to figure out what's the problem here? Who's your God? What's going on? How can we save ourselves? And Jonah answered, verses 9 to 10, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, Yahweh, there, so they know what, which Lord they're talking about, because he had told them. Jonah just revealed the problem to them. I have put everybody's life here in danger because I was disobedient to the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. 
you could almost sense the defeat in Jonah's words. My disobedience has put all of us in danger. Of course the sailors were mad, both of Jonah's disobedience and of Jonah's foolishness. Your disobedience to your God has put us in danger? On top of that, you were foolish enough to try and run from the God who you just described as the God of the sea on a boat? How does that make any sense? What are you thinking? <laughs> he has control over the seas and you chose to run from a boat on a boat? It's, it's dumb. It's senseless. Just like often our disobedience is. Are you crazy? So Jonah, not knowing what to do, gave him a solution in verse 12. Pick me up. You see his sense of justice coming again here. Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. We see a sense of justice coming again. See, at least Jonah had some kind of integrity, right? He wanted God to be a God of justice, not only to the Ninevites and kill them for their evil, but he also realizes at this point he's not much better. He's also a sinner who rebels. So Jonah applied the same passion of justice he applied to the Ninevites to himself. That's his God, right? A God of just pure justice. Well, kill me, kill me then. Throw me away, because it's my fault. Verse 15, they threw Jonah into the sea, and the sea stopped from raging. But then, we're not getting into it this, this week. We're going to get into it next week. But then, you see in verse 17, that will include the next week's sermon, God saved Jonah with a miraculous great fish. He has control over the lots, over the sea, over the plants in chapter 4, over the winds in chapter 4, over the sun and the worms in chapter 4. In chapter 2, he is a sovereign God, creator of all things, also has authority and control over a great fish. That's the theme of the book. All right? So Jonah, passive saying, it's my fault, kill me, thrown into the sea, yet God saved him by a miraculous act. And notice and notice also what happens to the sailors. The sailors were saved as well. Look at verse 16. The, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a, sacrif a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Jonah was saved. Despite of his disobedience, the sailors were saved, despite of their idolatry. God put everybody in the same playing field, and he saved Jonah and saved the sailors. And this isn't fear of the storm. The storms died at this point. They feared Yahweh. They worshiped and made vows to him which is a sign of commitment. God had pity on rebellious Jonah. God had pity on idol-worshiping sailors. Let me ask you again, how should God treat Nineveh? Should he have pity on them? Let's, let's, let's pose this question once again that, that God posed to Jonah and is posing to you and I right now from this text. Whom God, you and I, whom God has had patience with, in spite of our many apparent and hidden immoralities, rebellions, and disobedience. Jonah, you and I, whom God should have the right to let perish in our own sin, he'd be completely just if he does that, but yet has had pity on you. Should he have pity on your Ninevites? This is the lesson God is trying to teach Jonah, to teach us. And after being saved by God, using this great fish in chapter 2, look at what Jonah did. We won't see, but in chapter 3, finally Jonah preached to Nineveh. Finally, Jonah um, 
uh, wanted them to not perish, at least for a moment, right? He didn't, he didn't justify their evil behavior. He didn't say what they're doing was okay. He never did that. God didn't ask him to do that. He didn't become best friends with them. God didn't ask him to do that either. All he did was obey God and stopped wishing that they would perish. He just stopped simmering in his anger. That's all he did and wished the best for them. And later in chapter 4, you see Jonah going back to wishing that they were dead. <laughs> chapter 4, he was back to being angry again. He was like, okay, you know, I'm saved. I'm a sinner too. I'm saved by grace. And I, you know, hey guys, repent. You know, you should be saved by grace too. And then they actually repented. And he's like, darn it. Like they actually repented. And, and he's back to where he was, which just shows how hard this is for us to do, even for a prophet to do. It's really hard work to get to that point. I know. God knows. We know that. But nevertheless, nevertheless, should not sinful people like us, should not sinful people like Jonah have pity on our Ninevites? Should we not do that? Should we not, as those whom God has shown unbelievable patience to every day in our lives, at the very, le- at the very least, desire to begin to forgive and put in the hard work of getting to the point that we no longer simmer in anger towards those who hate us? We can only begin to do this if we first see how much God has had patience toward us, which is what the next scene of the, the, the book was about. But, and our last point, this is where the gospel comes in. Christianity is unique in this way, in that the patience that the Bible tells us the true, just God has upon his people isn't just ge- the generic sort of patience or the generic sort of kindness. It was a costly one. All right, let's go to our last point. God's better justice. See, Jonah... Like many of us, we look upon how we, we look upon how God wanted to treat Nineveh in his mercy and his patience, or how he's commanded us to treat our Ninevehs with love and kindness and wishing the best for them. And we often think, think that that's weak justice. That's, that's sort of weak, that, or even not justice at all. Which is true. You'd be true if you think that God's patience didn't cost anyone anything, Right? By definition, justice means someone paying for the wrong that has been done. That's justice. If you think that in God's mercy and patience and forgiveness, no one paid a price, then you'd be right. That's weak justice. That's no justice at all. But don't forget, don't forget the cross. Here in our story, we see a disobedient man, Jonah, willing to be thrown into the sea and sacrifice himself for the sailors, okay, for, for, for the mariners. Okay, so, so we see kind of a Christ-like picture here. One person being willing to be sacrificed so that others may live and not perish. In a sense, we see a good side of Jonah here, I guess a Christ-like side of Jonah, who was willing to be sacrificed so that others may have life. But don't forget, this is an imperfect picture of the gospel. What Jonah did for the sailors was nothing compared to what God did for you and I on the cross. Here, Jonah, don't forget, Jonah... All he did, he thought he was going to die anyways. He was in the storm. It was heading, it was going to crash the ship. And his rebellion caused the storm of God's wrath to appear. And it wasn't like the, the, the storm was going to stop. It was going to kill him anyways. So it's not like he was saying, I have a choice between life or death, and I choose death instead of life so that others may live. He was going to die anyways. It's either he dies with the sailors or he dies and somehow his death saves the sailors. It's not a choice from life or death. It's just, let me just use my death for something good at least. 
That's, that's what happened here for his own disobedience. But Christ, did, did he die for his disobedience? No. He died for ours. He was blameless. He didn't deserve to die, but yet died still. Why? For our wrongs, for our rebellions, for our sins. Really, was a death meant for us. Jesus did not take upon himself God's wrath to pay, upon, to pay for his own sins. He did it to pay for your sins and to pay for my sins. Why? So that God's justice will still be upheld. Somebody still paid the cost of our wrongdoings. It's not weak justice. It's better justice. That's why God could have pity on Jonah. You think God had pity on Jonah because he was a good person? That's why God can save the idol-worshiping sailors. They didn't deserve it. But because he knows he will pay for it. He will pay for their disobedience on his cross, just like he's paid for ours if we've received him as Lord and Savior. He didn't save Jonah because he has some sacrificial act of giving his life away at the end. No, he was going to die anyways. He didn't save the sailors because they feared the Lord. They were worshiping the Lord only after the storm stopped. And they're worshiping other gods while, while, the, while the storm was going on. That, that's not, the storm didn't stop because they started worshiping God. The storm, they worshiped God after the storm stopped. They don't deserve to be saved. So why did God do it? Why did God have patience on them? Because of his cross. Not because it's a weak sense of justice. Why did God have mercy, patience, and grace, and forgiveness? Because Jesus took upon himself the wrath of God's ultimate storm that was meant for you and me. That was meant for Jonah. That was meant for the sailors. That was meant for the Ninevites. Romans 5, that while we were yet still enemies, Christ died for us. God did not wish calamity upon us, his enemies. Those who daily challenge his rightful place as, as God and make our own decisions because we want to be our own gods. He does not wish calamity upon us, but he wishes what he wanted what's best for us and went all the way onto the cross. So I pray. I pray that we would grow and become those who don't simmer in our anger to become a people who do not wish calamity against those who are our greatest enemies and begin whatever long, hard road process there is ahead towards forgiveness, whether that be whomever it is. And if you, if you have questions about your particular situation, I encourage you to talk to a trusted friend about how to navigate through this forgiveness because every situation is different. And, and when you look for a friend to talk to, don't just look for a yes man that'll just tell you, yes, 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 your angry is right. And look for somebody that'll actually love you and empathize with you, but also challenge you at the same time. Whatever you do, try and get, get there. Or talk to the elders of your church. They're usually great people to go to. Why? Why do all this? Why start the hard work of letting go our simmering angers? One, because our creator, who has control and authority over all creation, as we've seen, the ocean, the sea, the wind, he also has authority over us, and he has commanded us to do so, and that alone should be enough. One. Two, but on top of that, we owe it to ourselves for our own sake to move towards Christ-likeness, to move towards health, to move towards those who are meant to live as lovers of even their enemies by letting go, by simmering anger, and, and, and that can lead us into this downward spiral. And on top of that, three, 
because we have no idea how much we have also been recipients of God's patience and mercy. So much so that it cost Jesus his life. God embraced the cross for us, his enemies, that we, that he may call us friend, he may call us child, beloved, those whom he pities and have mercy on. So how should God deal with disobedient people? How should God deal with sinful people? He does so on the cross. Where he has mercy on us and pays for the cost of our wrongdoings himself. Where his mercy and better justice meets. Will you not do the same as redeemed, forgiven people whom God has had unbelievable patience to? Let's pray. Lord, what a convicting passage. What an unbelievable truth it is that you would have patience on people like us, not based on anything we have done, not because we've earned it, not even because your prophet Jonah's earned it, but because you on the cross has taken all our sins upon yourself. And this has caused you to have mercy and grace and enduring patience forevermore until we see you face to face. Because even as those who have been bought by your blood and redeemed and received you as Lord and Savior, we still make mistakes, we still sin, and we still contend your rightful place as God. But you have told us to let go of simmering anger and begin this process of forgiveness. Not only because you are God and you have the right to command us to do whatever you want, but because also you've had patience on us, sinners, and you've leveled the playing field between us and our Ninevites. We're on, so to speak, the same boat. And we all deserve your wrath but yet you died on the cross for us and that we may extend to others this same mercy, not justify their behavior, not enable them, not having to be best friends with them, but at the very least, let go of our simmering anger and move towards forgiveness, whatever that may look like for our situation. And on top of that, Lord, it's also, you said, what's best for us, that we may stop this downward spiral and move towards how humans were meant to be, how we were in the garden, and how we will be in the new heavens and new earth. Those who are in love with each other at a place where love no longer hurts. Help us portray that, though imperfectly as we may today, here, as ambassadors, as representatives of the merciful and just God, who has shown his justice and mercy together without sacrificing the other on the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.